Open your Bibles up to Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 16 this morning, page 1140, if you're using a pew Bible. I was thinking when Leif stood up here earlier and he was going to read Romans chapter 1, he said open up to page 1125, I thought, wow, 1125 to 1140, just a few pages Just a few pages is Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And how long we have spent (laughs) reading that letter together. I preached my first sermon in the book of Romans to you on January 7th, 2007. 2007. We will finish the book today. One month shy of four years. One month shy of four years together in this letter to the church at Rome. We have spent together studying this book over 120 hours in this public context going through this book together. And it's been an amazing journey. As I've thought back this past week, I've been very nostalgic. You can see that in the title of the message this morning, Goodbye, Old Friend. For indeed, this book has become my close friend, and I trust that it has become yours as well. Think back with me on some of the sermon series from this book, some of the titles. You remember the deep, dark descent of man? It went on and on and on, didn't it? We had another sermon series entitled The Danger of Growing Up Christian. The Danger of Growing Up Christian. We had another sermon series out of this book called Sola Fide, Faith Alone. We preached on breaking sin's grip. That was an important series in my own life and I believe in yours as well. We preached a series called The Law Cannot Sanctify You. The proper use of the law. Chosen by God. Do you remember that one? That really stretched us. The Restoration of Israel. That was supposed to be a summer series, but it strayed all the way into the fall. Paul's Recipe for Love. A manifesto for Christian citizenship and, most recently, how to live free in Christ. We've come a long way, baby, as they say. Personally, I have spent more than 2,500 hours in my study wrestling with the truths of this book, praying about how to, to imply it to my own heart, understand it, and then to make it plain and applicable to all of us. It has indeed become an old friend. It has changed me forever. I trust it has changed you too. Join me here in Romans 16, beginning in verse 21, as we close out this text. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason. And so, Sipater, my kinsman, I, Tertius, write this letter, greet you in the Lord. 
Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. We noted last week that there are two sets of greetings in this letter as Paul closes it out. There was the earlier set, the earlier part of chapter 16 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, Paul's important reminder and teaching to the church there at Rome is kind of his final parting shot with regard to the danger of false teachers among the believers. And then he returns here to a few more final greetings before he closes out the letter with a doxology. These greetings are offered by the church there at Corinth. This was where Paul wrote the letter from. Written near the end of his third missionary journey, he had about a three-month stay in Corinth. And while there, he wrote to the church at Rome. Staying, as it tells us here, verse 23, in the house of Gaius. It occurred to me, in fact, I, I read it, one person suggested this idea, and as I began to think about it, I thought, you know, there's probably some validity to this. And, and that is, as Paul was in the house of Gaius and was, was dictating this letter, it's highly likely, I would imagine, that when he finished, that the church there at Corinth probably had a chance to hear it. To hear it read to them and and then to pen at the end these few final greetings off to the church at Rome. It's only logical indeed since it is the very word of God from the apostle of God and the most systematic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul would want the church in, in Corinth to hear it before it's sent off to Rome. And so he includes these few final greetings here from Timothy, verse 1, or 21 rather, and Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. And I get to verse 22 and I can't help but chuckle a little. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius was Paul's amanuensis, his, his secretary. Paul would have dictated this letter and Tertius would have been writing it out for him. And I I have to chuckle because I just imagine in my mind's eye that they get to the end of the letter here and and Paul says to Tertius, he said, do you you want to include something? Would you like to say something to the the church at Rome as well? And sure, I'd love to. Well, go ahead. What would you like to say? I greet you in the Lord. Is that it? Yeah, that's that's it. That's, That's all I want to say. I greet you in the Lord. Just causes me to chuckle as I think a little bit about that. So here are these final greetings. 
Rastus, the city treasurer, Quartus, the brother. And then Paul closes it out with a doxology. And that's really why I want to focus this morning with you. I want to focus upon this doxology with which Paul closes out this great epistle. Because in this doxology, there are references and allusions to the major themes of the book. Here in just these few verses, 25, 26, 27, Paul alludes to or explicitly speaks of the major divisions of the book. He kind of wraps it all up here. And so as we work through the doxology together, we will review the book. We'll look at its five major sections together this morning. And in doing that, I I hope to cement it just that much deeper in my own heart and mind and in yours as well. So that's our process this morning, to go through the doxology and review the book. Notice verse 25, just a couple of things as we begin. Paul says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Do you see that phrase? According to my gospel. Same phrase appears over in chapter 2 and in verse 16. Paul calls it his gospel over there. The reason he refers to it is not to imply that it is different than the gospel that is being preached by other apostles. Not at all. The reason he calls it my gospel here is to speak of its similarity, the way, the way it's identical with, actually, the gospel of all the other apostles. He's saying the gospel I preached to you, my gospel, whom he further defines in verse 25 as the preaching of or preaching about Jesus Christ, is the same gospel that you would hear anywhere else. It is the gospel. My gospel is the gospel. And it's here in Paul's letter to the church at Rome that he most fully declares and explains that gospel really of anywhere in all the Bible. It's here for us. So as we look together at this doxology, I want to show you five five memorable characteristics, five memorable characteristics of Paul's gospel so we don't forget the book of Romans. The first is that Paul's gospel is universal. It is universal. Notice at the end of the doxology, or near the end, verse 26, actually, the end of verse 26, Paul talks about this gospel has been made known to all the nations. Do you see that? The gospel that has been made known to all the nations, ethnos in the Greek, translated nations, or it could be translated Gentiles. And it speaks of the universality of Paul's gospel, that it goes out to all the nations. It's for all the nations. Why? Why is Paul's gospel universal? Why is Paul's gospel for all the nations? The answer to the question is very simple. It's because all nations have the same problem. All peoples have the same problem. Whether they be Jew or Gentile, they have the same problem. And the problem is sin. It is the problem of sin. That's what makes the gospel universal. Because everyone has the same problem. There is one universal cure because there is one universal problem. The problem of sin. And that takes us all the way back into the beginning of the book. 
So if I can turn you back there. Chapter 1. Let your eyes land in verse 18 where Paul begins to expound the universal problem of mankind. Romans chapter 1 and beginning in verse 18 and running through the close of that chapter 1, Paul lays out the depravity of the Gentile nations. He speaks of those who have refused the knowledge of God, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Paul says that the nations of the world, all the non-Jews of the world, have received the revelation of God. That the very truth of God is known deeply within them because God has put it in them. He has revealed His glory to them in the creation. They look up into the, star, into the starry sky at night. They see the sun in the daytime. They look up at the mountains. They see the intricacies of the flowers. And God has made Himself known. They look within their own heart their own conscience, their own innate sense of right and wrong. And God is shouting to them everywhere, and yet they will not listen. They refuse Him. They shut Him out. Paul says it's it's they suppress this knowledge. They are actively at work holding down the knowledge of God. It's as if they are in a swimming pool with a beach ball, and they are trying to hold it under the water, and it is doing everything it can to bubble to the surface, and they're doing everything within their power to hold it under the water. That is what the unbelieving world does with the very knowledge of God. They submerge it. They suppress it. They actively push it down and push it away. Because of this innate wickedness within them, giving up on God, God gives up on them. And as the text begins to spill out in the rest of the of this chapter, it is a terrible death spiral. It is indeed the, the deep, dark descent of man. Down, down, down go the nations and their cultures. Until at the end where it says, verse 32, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. My friends, we are living in a country that is suppressing the truth of God and has suppressed the truth of God for so long that we are going down, down, down. This is the world in which we live. But it is not just the Gentiles who have stiff-armed God, who have pushed Him away. It is His own chosen people It is the Jewish nation and their sin is just as deep and just as culpable. And beginning in chapter 2 and in verse 1, Paul speaks to them. He says, therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. 
For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. God's chosen people who had his law that had been given to them on Mount Sinai, they too push it away. They too, in in an act of self-righteousness, condemning the Gentile nations around them, yet they too are guilty of the very same things. Verse 17, chapter 2, Paul says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? The answer is yes. Possessing the revelation of God, the knowledge of God, the people of God, the Jewish nation themselves are caught and condemned by their own hypocrisy, by their own failure to live in accordance with the word of God that they say they love and honor. And so over in chapter 3, And verse 9, Paul pulls it all together. He summarizes this universal problem. Where he says in verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the peace of God have they not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. As Paul pulls together this final condemnation of humanity, he has first brought the Gentile nations before the bar of God's justice and he has found them lacking and guilty. He has brought the Jewish nation before the same bar of justice and he has found them guilty and lacking. And then he brings them all together that there is all caught up in this grand indictment and says there is not even one, none who seek after God, none who are righteous, all have become useless. And in fact, it's a 14-point indictment beginning in verse 10 and running through verse 18. There in those verses, Paul says that they are, we are, beloved, unrighteous, ignorant, rebellious, willful, rancid, immoral, corrupt, deceitful, dangerous, hostile, violent, destructive, restless, and arrogant. This is who we are. This is our nature. This is fallen humanity with the veneer of goodness stripped away and the depths of our own soul revealed. Where does evil come from in the world? Why do we do what we do? The answer is that it bubbles up out of a fallen and wicked heart. This is fundamentally who we are. Unredeemed humanity, radically and inescapably sinful. Spiritually dead and hostile toward their Creator. This is 
Paul's gospel. This is the reality of humanity. What is the just punishment for those who are engaged in such cosmic treason? What do we deserve? The answer is eternal condemnation. It is to be confined to the lake of fire where we will be endlessly punished because we remain endlessly guilty before God. Unable to deliver ourselves. Uninterested in the truth. Content to live in evil. This is the state of the human soul. Unable to save ourselves and desperately in need of someone to save us. And God in His great love for us has reached out to us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the next major aspect of Paul's Gospel. It is Christocentric. It is Christ-centered. It all revolves around Him. It's all about Him. I take you back to the end, to the doxology in chapter 16. In verse 25, Paul's gospel is universal because our problem is universal. It is the problem of sin. Paul's gospel is Christocentric. That is that it is entirely focused on Christ. Paul says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Literally, according to my gospel, that is the preaching about Jesus Christ. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. Paul's preaching is Christ. He says to the Corinthians, I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is all about Christ. Why? Why? It is because God is infinitely holy. God is infinitely righteous. God cannot refuse to punish sin. God must punish sin to its uttermost, to its fullest extent. To do otherwise were to make him unrighteousness or unrighteous. To, to think of God turning away, looking away, avoiding sin would be to make God an unrighteous judge. It would be as if a human judge were to look upon a, a convicted, guilty party and to then wink at them and let them go free. It would be as if a parent who is laying on the couch, too lazy to get up and discipline their bratty child. God cannot overlook sin. He must deal with it and He must deal with it to the uttermost. And yet God loves us. He loves His creation. God desires to save all who will call upon Him in faith. My friends, this would seem to put God in a no-win situation. He has His righteousness on one hand, which He must satisfy. On the other hand is His infinite mercy and grace, which He desires to make fully known. How can God both punish sin and yet not condemn all of humanity to the lake of fire? The answer is found in Christ. And for that, we turn to chapter 3 of Paul's great letter. The answer to this divine dilemma lies in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 25. 
Christ Jesus, it says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, and here it is, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God can remain just and he can justify, that is, he can acquit guilty sinners without violating either aspect of his divine character. And it is found in Christ because he can lay upon him, indeed, he did lay upon him the guilt, the sin of his people. He punished Christ to the uttermost for your sin and mine. God is both just and justifier. And we access this justification by faith. It is when we believe God's word and we act upon it that God credits or reckons his righteousness to us on the basis of faith. Verse 21, Paul says, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is by grace we are saved through faith. When we place faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, when we believe God and take him at his word, that we are justified, that we are declared righteous in the sight of God. This is not a new doctrine. This is how God has always operated. And in chapter 4, Paul makes that very clear. God has always saved by grace through faith. And he shows us that first in the life of, Adam, or of Abraham, the progenitor of the Jewish nation, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Look at it. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. As David, the great king of Israel said, verse six, speaking of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account it has always been that we are saved by faith the people of god have always been saved that way and that is how i have been saved and that is how you have been saved if you know christ this morning it is by his grace through faith the question might come to some thoughtful soul to ask themselves how can the sacrifice of jesus christ bring about the redemption of so many spiritually dead people? How does the death of that one man accomplish the redemption of humanity? How does it work? Paul answers that question for us in chapter 5. In chapter 5. And he, he does it by drawing a comparison. In chapter 5 of Romans, he draws a comparison between the one transgression of Adam, that is, eating of the forbidden fruit, which resulted in the condemnation of the whole race, 
and Jesus' gracious sacrifice, which is so much greater that it overwhelms and extinguishes all the accumulated sin of all of his people for all of the ages. It is Adam and Christ that Paul compares one to another. Chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then... As through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Paul's point is that we all fell in Adam. And it was in Adam that sin entered into the human race and condemned us all. That one transgression undid us. And yet Christ is able to overcome not just that first transgression, but all of our accumulated transgressions, all of my sin, past, present, and future, all laid upon Christ and His one act, His one deed, His one sacrifice is more than sufficient to extinguish my guilt for all eternity. And not just for me, but for you, if you will believe on Him as well. Paul's gospel is Christocentric. It is universal. Third, it is powerful. Paul's gospel is powerful. Back to chapter 16. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you, down to verse 27, to the only wise God, He's able to establish you. Who? God is able to establish you. It is in the gospel that the power of God is revealed. Paul says it himself in chapter 1 and in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is powerful, beloved. It is so powerful that it can break sins back. It delivers us. It releases us from sin. It strengthens or establishes spiritually dead people as they believe upon it. And it sustains them from that moment forward for the rest of eternity. It is the gospel that releases the very power of God into our lives. And we see that manifest beginning in chapter 6. And running through chapter 8. Chapters 6 through 8 reveal the very power of the gospel of God. Paul says, Romans chapter 6, that the gospel breaks sin's hold over us. That is, we no longer have to sin. 
We are no longer compelled. We are no longer in bondage. We are no longer slaves to sin. We, we now have a choice and the ability to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And Paul makes it exceedingly clear, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 6. He says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. We have been crucified with Christ, the gospel says, and when we died with Jesus Christ, the power of sin was broken. It no longer controls us. It no longer dominates us. When we yield, we are yielding voluntarily. And we have within us, in the power of the gospel, the ability to say no. I cannot help but think back several years to preaching this sermon here out of Romans 6 and talking about the power of God being broken. And how when we get a grip on the gospel and what it has done for us, that when sin faces us, we have within the gospel itself as we believe it and act upon it, the ability to say, you shall not pass. And we may turn it back. We may turn it back. It is only in the gospel that we have the ability to say no to sin. And Paul moves into chapter 7 to make it absolutely clear Chapter 7 is about the law. Well, maybe I'm saved through the gospel, but then my life continues under the law. That I can be made right by keeping law, by keeping rules, by sets of standards, things that I do and don't do. Is that how one finds his release from sin and progress in the Christian life? And Paul says, oh, you fool, may it never be. It is not the law, for the law cannot restrain the flesh. The law only inflames the flesh. And Paul's point here, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 7, is just that. Christians who place themselves back under the law will find nothing but frustration in their life, nothing but failure, nothing but shortcoming, nothing but a sense of woe is me. Verse 7, what shall I say? We say then, Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 15. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. Verse 19. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, it is no longer one. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law 
in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul there personifies the believer who is attempting to make progress in the Christian life by putting themselves back under the law. And he has said in chapter 6, no, it is the gospel that frees you from sin. It is the gospel that contains the power for you to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. It is the gospel that will transform your desires so that the, the sinful things of this world will no longer appeal to you. It is only in the gospel and you must saturate yourself in the gospel all the time, every time, every day. Never flee from the cross of Christ. You fool. If you try to find this through the law, if you try to make rules and laws and, and think this will make me holy, it will do nothing but frustrate you. It will do nothing but inflame your sin. It will do nothing but cause you to cry out with Paul, what a wretch I am. Who will deliver me? Back to chapter 6. It is Christ and Christ alone that can deliver you. It is the power of God and the gospel. And that gospel power is unleashed in us through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, chapter 8. It is unleashed in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. He is the one who provides to us our certain hope of glory. He is the one who mediates to us the truth of the gospel and enables us to believe in it. Chapter 8, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. That is, the Spirit of God will give you hope. He will say to you that your mortal bodies are not going to be bound like this forever, but that Christ will return and He will grant you the glorified body in which all traces and vestibules of sin will be forever removed. It is the Spirit who who mitigates this or... or, uh, Enables us to believe this truth. Chapter 15, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 15. Paul says, You have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of the gospel, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. It is the spirit who enables us to believe. It is the spirit who confirms to our spirit that we do indeed believe the gospel. It is the spirit who who opens up to us the power of the gospel and enables us to live within it. It is the spirit of God. Chapter 28 or chapter 8 verse 28. Paul says we know. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom He predestined, these He also called. And whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? It is the Spirit who enables us to believe and to hang on to the gospel in the face of Satan's assaults. Verse 38. It is the indwelling Spirit of God 
who enables us to say, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is the work of the Spirit that unleashes within us, unleashes within us the very power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in which we not only were saved, but are saved and will be saved. Paul's gospel is universal because sin is universal. Paul's gospel is Christocentric because it, it revolves around the work of Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel is powerful because it delivers from sin, not just eternally, but even temporally here and now. And Paul's gospel is mysterious. Fourth, Paul's gospel is mysterious. The end of chapter 8 the thoughtful person asks this question. The question they ask is, Paul, if you are promising this to me in the gospel, that nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, if I am eternally secure in Christ, then what happened to Israel, Paul? How could it be that your chosen people have fallen away? How can it be those to whom the promises were given no longer believe? How could it be that they have become so hostile to this gospel you preach, which you say is a gospel that is firmly rooted in the scriptures, as we can see as far back as Abraham? How can it be, Paul? Paul answers the question and he says that there is a mystery involved here. Back to your doxology. Verse 25, chapter 16, Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, here it is, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. There is a mystery. There is a mystery to the gospel. Generally speaking, in Paul's writings, when he refers to mystery, he is referring to the reality of Jew and Gentile coming before God through Christ on equal footing as one new man. That is, generally speaking, the mystery of the gospel in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That is, before the cross of Jesus Christ, the ground is entirely level. There are no social distinctions. There are no cultural distinctions. There are no advantages for any. But there's another side to this mystery, and and that's what Paul's talking about here. There's another side to the mystery of the gospel. And that other side to the mystery is that the church has not swallowed up the Jewish nation. That the people, the ancient people of God who are hostile to him now, yes, someday will turn and embrace Christ. Gentiles and Jews now together as one new man, but someday, someday the ancient promises will come true. The promises of the ancient prophets that Messiah's kingdom would be here on earth, that the Gentile nations would flow into the kingdom will come true. A physical, literal kingdom here upon earth. The entrance requirements to which are spiritual, 
That is, one must believe in Israel's Messiah. But nonetheless, it is a very, very physical kingdom. Paul takes up these issues beginning in chapter 9 of Romans. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 take up the issue of Israel. What about Israel, Paul? What has happened to them? Have they just been swallowed up in the church? Have they forfeited their ancient promises? Has, has all that the prophets spoke come to naught and has now become the spiritual possession of the church? Is that what the Old Testament says and what the New Testament teaches? Paul would say to us, Meganeton, may it never be. May it never be. And so Paul takes up the mystery of Israel beginning in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, he addresses the fall of Israel and he addresses it from the divine perspective. And he says there in chapter 9 that Israel's fall was according to divine election. That it was because of the secret election of God that Israel has fallen away. Chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. He goes on, verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Paul says the fall of Israel, the present unbelief of the people of God, the ancient people of God, the nation of Israel is according to God's divine plan. That is his sovereign election that has brought these things about. He goes on in chapter 10. And he addresses the fall of Israel from the human perspective. And in chapter 10, he says that the fall of Israel, the refusal of Israel to embrace their Messiah is their own fault because it comes through unbelief. Chapter 10 and verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Verse 18. But I say, surely they've never heard, have they? Indeed, they have, Paul says. Verse 19. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And he says at the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. Verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Why is the nation of Israel not embracing Christ as their Messiah? What holds them back? What keeps them away? Why such manifold hostility to the things of God? And the answer is, it is their fundamental unbelief. It is their desire to establish their own righteousness, to make themselves right before God, to be able to say to God, I came in through my own good works that holds them back from Christ. Well, what shall I say then? Verse 11, verse chapter 11, verse 1. God has not rejected his people, has he? Paul's answer, may it never be. 
Israel's fall is not permanent, is it? Is there unbelief and hardness of heart forever? Have they fallen away entirely? Has the church taken over their promises? Have we become the new Israel? Paul says, absolutely not. Their fall is not permanent. And in fact, what he says is that you Gentiles, you better not be arrogant about your position. Verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is Israel. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 25, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this, what? Mystery. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Has God cut off his people permanently? Paul's answer is absolutely not. But we are living in an age of a mystery that has now been revealed to us. Jew and Gentile, equal footing through Christ into the presence of God as one new man. But someday that will end. And Christ will return for his church and he will snatch us home to be with him. And when he does, God will again return to begin to work with his ancient people. This is the mystery of the gospel. The gospel is universal. The gospel is Christocentric. The gospel is powerful. The gospel is mysterious. And finally, the gospel is transformational. The gospel is transformational. Back to the doxology. The end of verse 26. Paul says that his gospel, the end of verse 26, leads to obedience of faith. It is leading to the obedience of faith. It is transformational in people's lives. It it produces an obedience that demonstrates our faith. It produces a faith that works itself out in obedient submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's gospel transforms our lives and it transforms us in three very basic areas that Paul lays out for us. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, it transforms us at the level of our love. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It transforms us at the level of our love. It so changes us. It so causes us to think God's thoughts after him that we begin to do the very unthinkable thing, which is love other people more highly than we love ourselves. That we begin to to act like Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It so transforms us that in the level of personal relationships, we can even feed our enemies, give them a glass of Water to drink. We cannot be overcome by evil, but we can overcome evil with good. It transforms who we are at the level of our love. 
Chapter 13, it transforms who we are at the level of our citizenship. It completely revolutionizes how we respond to governmental authorities. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse 7. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. It transforms us as a citizen. No longer do we see the government as our enemy. We see the government as providentially established by God for our protection. We come to understand that even fallen, broken human governments are better than the alternative. That anarchy is never the answer. It is always to submit to the, to the governing authorities. With the one exception, and that is when they command us to do something that violates the explicit word of God. God has given us government and he has given it for the benefit of mankind. And the gospel transforms the way we respond to it. And I know this to be true because I know a number of you have spoken to me over the months and saying when we preach through this series in chapter 13 that the level of speeding tickets in this congregation dramatically declined. <laughs> that we came to realize that 65 miles per hour is not a suggestion. It is the law of the land. And for those of us who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we submit to governing authorities and we maintain the lawful speed limits. The gospel is transformational with regard to our patience. Chapter 14 and half of 15. It is transformational at the level of our patience. Verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgments on his opinions. It transforms us at the very level of our patience. Paul says we are... We are to love one another. We are to be patient with one another. We're not to impose upon a brother our understanding of our Christian freedom. That those of us who have come to the greater theological understanding that we are free in Christ, that we are not to use that freedom, we are not to flaunt that freedom and to subvert the weaker faith of our brother. And those who are weaker in faith are not to turn on their more liberated brothers and to say to them, I judge you in the Lord that you are somehow sinning against God and that His grace may not be able to hang on to you. Paul says, be patient with one another, be humble before one another, love one another, and give each other space. It is transformational in a congregation. Paul's gospel is universal. Paul's gospel is Christocentric. Paul's gospel is powerful. Paul's gospel is mysterious. And Paul's gospel is transformational. I trust you believe this gospel. I trust that you know it and you believe it. That it has become precious to you. That there in the gospel, you sense reality. That you recognize your sinfulness. That your need for a Savior. That there is nothing you can do. And that God has done it all for you in Jesus Christ. And you must take Him at His word. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. And you must continue to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must continue 
to preach that gospel to yourself. And as you do, the very power of God through His indwelling Spirit will be released in you. You'll begin to live a life that is pleasing to Him. My friends, Paul's gospel is all we have and all we need. May it penetrate deeply, deeply into our hearts. May we not forget our four years together in this great book. Let's pray. O Lord, it is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that the greatest density of your grace and mercy is to be found. It is there in those amazing truths as we read them, as we reflect on them, as we believe them, as we continually preach them to ourselves and to each other, that we find the power of God to give us victory over sin. Oh Lord, we have labored away these past four years. We have studied in depth this great book. We have picked it apart word by word, clause by clause. We have reassembled the parts and components and stepped back to look at them again. Like an amazing diamond that shines in brilliance, oh Lord, we have gazed upon this truth. But, O Lord, unless that gaze is united with a heart of faith, unless your Spirit work within us to strengthen us in the inner man and enable us to embrace and believe this truth, O Lord, it will be for naught. O God, I pray that you would not allow any who have spent these, these months, these years with us in this great book, to walk away from it unchanged. To walk away from it and say, so what? Oh, Lord God, may You do amazing things in our lives. Transform us, oh Lord, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.